John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 853.PS13709, certificate number 34368. Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. Do you remember when we were, when our podcast was just a twinkle in our eyes? Uh, our trip to Hotlanta? Atlanta, sure. Georgia, to uh, to meet with our new corporate masters. To pitch our podcast to them. That's right. And to see their expensive question mark shaped table. That's in, right. In their conference room. We were headed down. I think we've probably told this story, but we went down to meet with the um, the people at iHeartMedia. And our initial pitch was for a podcast called The Worst, where we were going to talk about the worst things. At, uh, in all in all spaces, right? Good. That was a great pitch. The worst. I'm Ken, and I'm John, and this show is the worst. <laughs> and we were on the plane together, flying down there. We were talking about coming up with some ideas for the shows, and about halfway through the flight, we looked at each other, and I think I said, "Do you like this idea?" And you were like, "I really don't." And I said, "God, I don't like it either." And we did a pivot and and came up with like five or six different podcast ideas right there on our, on our cocktail napkin decided that we liked the sound of the omnibus best. Cause you and I are both nerds. I feel like you sent me a whole list of words like that. You yeah. were like omnibus almanac. <laughs> I did gazetteer. We did have a list and, uh, we picked omnibus. And then by the time we landed in, in Atlanta, we had, uh, we had some shows, some ideas, some of them still in my list of, of unproduced shows. But that night we went and hung out. We saw the giant question mark shaped table. We realized that when we said we weren't doing the worst and we're doing omnibus instead, everybody was really disappointed because they loved the worst and I think had already had t-shirts made and they like had to <laughs> quietly put the t-shirts in a, in a back closet. Our hotel was across the street from the Fox theater, the, uh, the venerable, like beautiful old uh... major theater in Atlanta where Prince played one of his last concerts. It's really a tremendous. It's one of these places that used to be some old movie house or vaudeville hall or something. So it's got this crazy weird orientalist architecture of some kind. Yeah. It's a gorgeous place. And it's, um, it's a place where if you're on the touring circuit of, of major bands, you playing the Fox in Atlanta is a big deal. It's a, it's a, or it's like the Paramount here in Seattle an ornate, uh, golden age theater that, really sets you if the day that you play it, you, you, you always remember. And I'd played the Fox as an opening band for a larger act. Oh yeah. And I knew the, I knew the venue and I knew it was a big deal to play there. And we looked out the window of our hotel and noticed the podcast. My favorite murder was doing a live show there. And it was a fairly new show at the time. I don't remember this. Yeah, yeah. it would have been a new show. It was a newish, newish show. But apparently, they could sell out the Fox Theater. Well, so that was what amazed me because you know we knew Karen Kilgareff from the internet, mm-hmm. and I'd met her a few times, and and we were Twitter pals, and um, and I remember when she started the podcast because I think I'd done a couple of like live wire style shows with her prior to that. 
And it seemed like, oh yeah, that's a funny idea. Like, you know, true crime podcast. What if there was one of those? And I, uh, looking out the window, I was like, now wait a minute. They're, they're doing a, because they were the, you know, they were the only thing on the marquee. I was like, how are they, how are they doing a show at the Fox Theater? Like that has a capacity of thousands of people. And our friend Chuck Bryant from How Stuff Works podcast said, you know, they're playing two sold out shows at the Fox. <laughs> and it blew my mind because at the time, true crime was a new, a new podcast genre. Serial. It was all Serial's fault. It was Serial's fault. That's right. But it was then that, it, that I was first introduced to what now is kind of a common, uh, commonplace knowledge uh, that true crime podcasts are huge and appeal to um, an audience, a majority audience of women. Mm -hmm. um, and this was something that in the last few years got a lot of traction on the internet. Counterintuitive, but then again... Our aunts were always reading Agatha Christie books. They all knew more about what cyanide did to blood vessels than our uncles. <laughs> That's right. It turns out 85% of true crime uh, media consumers are women. And because that was such an interesting and like at, at first sort of, uh, I think for, for a lot of listeners and commentators, kind of a surprise to learn, um, there were a lot of think pieces written about it and a lot of think pieces that kind of covered what you would expect to be the um the easy dumb take is the easy take that women are the people who actually have to live with the specter of violent crime in their daily lives this is a way of managing those fears and anxieties is that, is that the yeah common knowledge and 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 you know on a lot of think pieces uh like like think pieces everywhere the, in order to do a think piece, you don't have to do very much research. You Pretty can just think. You can just do a think piece. You can just come up with an idea like, you know why? I bet. I bet. Here's why. And then you write your think piece. And so that's why I like podcasting. You don't even have to have, do the first thing. <laughs> you don't even have to have an idea. Uh, I definitely have a couple of podcasts where you don't have to have an idea. You it, don't have to have any idea. Well, but, but then the, the, the idea emerges. Like the medium's good for that. Like I was. I was watching um, in the first three hours of the Beatles documentary. <laughs> There's a scene where Paul like needs an idea, and the, I think the in order to to hit this point home, words come up on the screen saying Paul needs a hit or something like that. Yeah, and you just see him; he's strumming and nothing, nothing. He changes up the chords, he changes up the rhythm, slight changes, slight changes, and then at 45 seconds, you can hear "Get Back." He just invents it, and right then in, front of in you. a uh, by a minute twenty. He's actually got the changes and some of the lyrics. Yeah. And and everybody's just, Ringo and George are just sort of sitting there like do 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 and then there it is. They don't know. Like cuz you're like I, I love watching that and, and telling my wife, "Hey, that that actually is going to be the middle eight. Like I'm very good at spotting talent as long as it's something that happened 50 years ago. As long as it's a song you've heard for yes. 50 years. <laughs> yeah, right. That really helps. But that's podcasting. You just sitting yeah. there do, 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 and occasionally something good happens and you're like, "Yes, this is an art." It's also essay writing. You know, like, like <laughs> type, type, type. You sit down and ha sit down with an idea, and then you prove it to yourself. But in essay writing, you cut out all the stuff until the idea comes. In podcasting, you never do. It's actually illegal. <laughs> you never go back. The audience gets so mad if you cut out the um, stuff without the idea. Uh, and you know, so after the after that initial like flush of of um, think pieces about why the why true crime. Not just podcasts, but television shows, uh, novels, films, like the whole the whole universe of true crime, why it has such a, a like an appeal to women. Uh, and that in, that initial response of like, well, women are the victims of violent crime, and we have to listen to or or he we they have to listen to this stuff to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Then there was a follow on set of think pieces that kind of critiqued that that easy sort of lazy layup of an, of a, of a, whatever. I, I had that idea 30 seconds ago and I think it was great. No <laughs> notes. Uh, and you know, and bringing statistics into play and, and looking at it from all different levels and like anything in our culture that's gendered, it's also fraught to talk about. Um, but there are a lot of reasons why true crime, uh, or, or there are a lot of suggestions, uh, for why true crime has a kind of gendered uh, 
differentiation in, in terms of its audience. And, uh, and it, anything like this, when you look at the statistics, then you get into the kind of that, that again, fraught sort of gendering of, of traits, like is empathy a female trait? Um, what, uh, Ken? Oh, I, didn't, I thought that was rhetorical. <laughs> no, that was a question. It it was rhetorical at first, and then I saw you looking at me, and I was like, well, let's hear it. I'm going to say uh, yes or no, mm-hmm. depending on, and in either case, the not problematic right. interpretation. Yes or no. Yes and or no. I mean, you don't want to say it in a way that um, suggests that, well, you know, even... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what you want to say is, this that, is fun. I guess you want to say is that our toxic culture is not encouraging these traits that should be universal in men the same oh, way it permits them in women. Nicely did done. I, did I get out of that? I think you. I feel Woo! like you. I feel like you stuck the landing. Um, there are a lot of reasons that true crime appeals, right? And and let's just say whoever you are that listens to a true crime podcast, um, there's true crime appeals to puzzle. Solving, right? Yeah. It's uh, and and you know, kind of mazes and puzzles that that activate. I like the all mystery of it more mystery. than I like anything about the procedural elements or how the science of the evidence works, or even the judicial, especially not the dull judicial wrangling. But I do like the mystery: who did it? And the and, and I think the that uh, another big appeal is the is that true crime enables you to have resolution and a sense of justice. In, in most cases, the popular shows and episodes are looking for examples of crimes where they are solved. And by teasing out the puzzle, you can arrive at a conclusion where what was once scary is now knowable and, and tamed, right? Domesticated. And I guess the lazy layup interpretation is that's part of the appeal. Like, right. hey, uh, this is not a big question mark of anxiety for me. There was a crime and now I know why it happened and who, and it got solved. So end of story. It's a little more controlled than my thinking about the, the awful disordered universe. There's a, there's an, a, an interesting quote. Uh, there's a woman named Dr. Gemma Flynn, who is uh, a Scots woman who is, um, it's gotta be Gemma, doesn't it? I guess Gemma. Do you think she got Gemma radiation and it turned her into a into a green hulk? You know, I like to mispronounce anything to do with Scotland just because I love to get letters from Scottish people. Because they sound so cute when they talk. Gemma. I mean, neither neither name sounds any more or less ridiculous to no. me, Gemma or Gemma. I guess we were talking the other day about how Jemima has survived as a name in the British Isles where it has not been tied to racial stereotypes. Right. And is, do you think Gemma is a diminutive of Jemima? Maybe, Maybe. the other way around. Hmm. Jemima's just Gemma with a bit of a stammer. Well, Dr. Gemma Flynn, uh, who works, um, um, and, and she has a, she has a very varied career and is also a stand-up comedian. And I think maybe is increasingly better known as a feminist stand-up than for her work at the Scottish Center for Crime and Justice Research. She's got to be better paid. I mean, I don't know what the SCCJR pays nowadays, uh, how many sheep stomachs it is to a, to a, to a killer. Um, which I believe is how the Scottish economy works. That's true. How many how many stuffed sheep's stomachs for every killer she brings in? Uh-huh. But surely a, a twenty minute set at the Fringe Festival pays better. Well, I mean, depends on where you are on the bill, right? <laughs> a twenty minute opening set probably doesn't. But she said about this um, that true crime media perpetuates a fear, a, like a like a a gendered fear of crime. She said. There's something self-perpetuating about the true crime media, which claims to serve a demand, but is in fact contributing to a misconception that violent victimization for women is likely and imminent. Really, if I were to follow the data on this issue, women should be walking men home at night. See, she's a professional comedian. So that, you know, reversed your expectations. But certain forms of true crime that focus on serial killers and random acts of violence against women send the message that women cannot move through the world with the same freedom as men. Ironically, this fear is both perpetuated by true crime and may also be driving women towards this form of media. I actually was, um, I was pitching a, a murder mystery show last year. And one of the ideas I had that there would be a killer who ends up doing crimes because his true crime podcast is running out of good murders. And so... <laughs> 
<laughs> you pitched this? Yeah, I, I was like, this should be an episode. Like, a tur- I mean, that's not the whole premise of the show, but yeah. you know, maybe one, ep- you know, it's a murder of the week show, and maybe one episode, the killer turns out to be the podcaster whose show is running out of good murders. Wow. Because that's what's going to happen. You know, once all the good murders have been done by, you know, all 50 of these podcasts, they're going to have to start killing people to get fresh episodes. Well, we're going to see in a minute that. Uh, that an episode of a true crime television show is uh, is based on the topic of today's show. Mm. So it does everything. Everything turns into an unsolved mystery. I'm not saying they, I'm not saying it's it. happened yet. I just want to be very clear that I don't think Karen Kilgrave has killed anyone. I love that pitch, though. Yeah, maybe and maybe it could be the show. Maybe he's he's like a Dexter type character who just. You know, like much as Doctor Watson needs a new case for his annals, you know, this guy needs a new body. Because he's got an episode right. coming out Tuesday, and he's got sponsors, and and Squarespace needs a body, man. You know, you remember Unsolved Mysteries, the terrible television show with the. Oh, with, I loved it. I loved the reenactments. <laughs> I loved Robert's Robert Stack in the in the trench coat. Apparently, it's just recently been rebooted and is like the number one. It's like it Ahead shot of its to time. the top. <laughs> right. What we need in this day and age is. A reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. But it goes against your point that people like the tidy solution. That show is called Unsolved Mysteries. Right. That's the advertising point is, we don't know who did any of these things. Check it out. There's a whole other uh, line of thinking, uh, you know, like a, there's a progressive critique of true crime sh- uh, media, which is that ultimately it it's just cop porn. Like, yeah. It, in, we, we talked. We talked about that when we did Dragnet, right? Yeah, right. They're all so efficient, and look at them doing their job in just forty-eight minutes. Well, and all of the, I mean, every sort of the procedural nature of a true crime. Uh, it, it, inevitably, there is a there's some competent police work that that ends up bringing I'm, the perp to justice. That's why Law and Order is the only um, woke procedural show because it just drops the cops at the twenty-two minute mark. <laughs> And then you see who the real heroes are. Yeah, the lawyers. District attorneys. <laughs> the, uh, and then the legal assistants, really. Um, female identification with true crime as a, not just a media genre, but as a, a forensic science mm-hmm. is not a 21st century phenomenon. In fact, it goes back to the very dawn of the idea of forensic science. That's interesting. It is interesting. Because you wouldn't think there would be, I mean, for, for one thing, I'm going to assert that it's interesting to, to whet the audience's attention. Yeah, thank you. You don't want to be listening to a podcast where half the half the people think it's boring. <laughs> or where one of the hosts goes, hmm, that's not interesting. This is not going anywhere, John. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because it's, I'm sure this is going to come from a time where women were not uh, uh, prevalent or respected in any professional fields. Maybe a... Uh, Maybe a nascent one is the place to be. Well, that is a safe bet if you're doing a show about any kind of science or professional life that goes before, um, you know, our lifetimes. Right. Ken, how's your hair? My hair feels great. It's actually it's pretty full and and uh, f- and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head with on- spray foam. Yeah, there's kind of, there's like a th- you know because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head. And they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know, the the degree to which a full head of hair is part of, a, you know, a kind of masculine identity, you are in a in a position where millions of people see, well, millions, uh, some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see, see you every week uh, hosting the Jeopardy program, and you don't want to look like um, less than... The full amount of fluff. The problem with our um, cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that, like, literally two out of three guys, the majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid-30s, you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a rare or severe or stigmatized problem it shouldn't be it happens to almost everybody and it used to be if you wanted to get um like an uh, a hair loss preventing medicine you had to go to a doctor right yeah you'd have to get a prescription sometimes you'd have to use a name brand Uh, and a lot of them aren't fda approved yes there's two fda approved ones and the great thing is you, you can get both of them uh cheaper and easier with keeps uh an online service for ordering, for prescribing and ordering, uh, and then 
continuing to receive uh, FDA-approved hair loss medication. Oh, so it still is a prescription in order to, to get the one of the two FDA-approved If you want ones. the prescribed one, yeah, you can get the prescription online. Um, you don't have to visit a doctor. Uh, you'll get a cheaper generic, so you're going to save a ton of money. And it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but the great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked and look at your hair now. Uh, like well, you, you. you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh-huh. I went to my doctor because, uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps. And I said, what do you have that will make me look like a little badger? He said, doctor, Mr. MD. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. And if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Forensic science was not really an idea in the medical profession or in police work until the, the 1930s. Prior to that, uh, medical examiners or, or coroners for big cities didn't, re- it wasn't required that they be doctors. They were just signing a piece of paper. Yeah, they were yep. like, this, got, here's a dead body in drawer number eight. This person died. He, uh, he had a knife in him, so I'm going to guess that knifing is the cause of death. There was blood all over. It was really gross. Signed, medical examiner. <laughs> Signed, Quincy. And police also did not uh, preserve crime scenes or, or uh, it, it's hard to imagine that it would have been a thing that didn't come naturally to police, but over the course, I mean, all the way back to Jack the Ripper, um, like the evolution of, of uh, police looking at a crime scene for clues um, and kind of, and, and recognizing that crimes can be solved by careful observation of the setting uh, was a thing that took uh, a long time to evolve. Let me just assert, that's interesting. That is interesting. Because it's interesting on two levels. One, well, first of all, my question is, what did they, how did they think the crime would be solved? With, um, with, with aggressive questioning of... of uh, yeah, of, shaking of down and suspects. Shaking down local thugs. Go break somebody's finger in a bar. I mean, I think a lot of the time it's more of a people puzzle to solve than a yeah, and factual po- one. I wanna, if you look at statistics of police work, police always think that they can tell the perp by the squinty uh, look in their eye. It's the money ball problem. You got a yeah. bunch of people who think, well, I can tell how this guy swings, so I don't need actual statistics. That's right. But the other thing that's interesting is like by the early 20th century, there was decades of history of, uh, of this as a media trope of fictional crime solvers finding footsteps in the wisteria or, or a missing ladder. You know, physical evidence is always the hook on which fictional detective stories hang. And that predates, fiction, you know, physical evidence actually becoming the thing that solves crimes, which is kind of the state of the science today. Yeah, it was, I mean, this was a, like Sherlock Holmes is um, uh, like a late 1880s a Victorian Victorian dude. development. And I think what it, what made Sherlock Holmes so appealing was that it was a super novel notion. It's like an X-Men comic. Like, right. look at this guy. He's doing what no human can. Crazy. And I think it took a long time for that to really filter down to local police work. The funny thing is all these goobers writing that stuff were right. Like they they just didn't have the access to... DNA and good fingerprinting and all that stuff. Well, and we see even now that the difference between uh, like really a really good police department and a not so good one is down to training. And there are still a lot of, you know, theories of police work that when you, when you put them into practice or unpack them, you're like, well, that, why didn't, why doesn't that always, why wasn't that how we always thought? Like the, the idea that crime is, is really focused generally in a city in a block or two, and you can, you can over police an entire neighborhood when really you just need to police like one and a half blocks of that neighborhood. And that's where all the, all the crime happens and you can, you can make a significant difference. 
uh, that's not a that's that's something that's just that's still a brand still a novel idea, but but statistics seem to indicate that that's true. I guess it's because it's so much of a field where the new people entering the organization just pick up the lore of their or the person who happens to be their orientation guy, you know, their first partner or whatever. Right. Instead of actual what you'd what you'd hope it would be. Training from people with an outside eye and evidence-based ideas. No, it's just gonna be kind of father to son. And now you've got and I think this has been true for a long time, police reformers come into police departments with an ideological axe to grind and police circle get the their, wagons. Get their backs up. And so you come in with science and, and you know, you wave a sheaf of, of studies in some police union space and they're going to just, they're uh, going to shut you down before you, they even hear your idea. But this is a story, <clears throat> I mean, like a lot of omnibus stories, this is a story about why you can't tax the rich. This is the story of the rich. Um, our story begins with the International Harvester Company, famous manufacturers of tractors and As so many trucks. great stories do. Um, uh, International Harvester Company, well, it starts before the International Harvester Company, let's be honest. But, uh, uh, our story begins in 1878 with the birth of Francis Glesner, who was the daughter of John Jacob Glesner, who became... The, is he uh, famous? I assume anybody named John Jacob is, John, he's, is, uh, is rich, including John Jacob Jinkelheimer Schmidt. I mean, everybody sings his name. That's because he owns some kind of factory or he's something. He's famous. Was he rich, though? Yeah. I mean, would you sing anybody's name if they, every time he goes out if he weren't rich? I guess, mm. if he, I guess if he were hated. Yeah. No, I sing people's names that aren't rich. Look, it's not just the people... <laughs> It's not just that people shout his name. They also say, na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Yeah, that's true. And I wouldn't do that unless somebody was super rich. Uh, what, did you just sing, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun? Don't take those old records <laughs> off the shelf. Yeah, uh, I think Chuck Berry, whoever stole that from the the beginning, how you get back into the verse of John Jacob Jinko mm-hmm. Schmidt. Francis Glesner was, uh, was the daughter of a wealthy family uh, in, born in Chicago. And was a Victorian and raised in the, uh, in the manner of Victorians. Uh, th- that was an era where arts and crafts were really what a Victorian woman learned a whole s- – all, all the arts and crafts, needlepoint, knitting, but also um, lots of little constructions. Uh, Dollhouses were very popular in the Victorian era. There were a lot of – I guess that makes sense. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of crafts that that distinguished a woman of leisure, and that stuff's related to not just childbearing but domestic life. Domestic life, yeah. and it was, and they lived in a they lived in a in a beautiful and very domestically well appointed home. Uh, her father, John Jacob, was a collector of old furniture, and if you can imagine uh, the old furniture that you would have had access to in the eighteen eighties, wow, you could have really had like uh, some old furniture, not like now. You know when it's all gone. Yeah, I, I mean, I go to a store now, and it's like this. This couch is from 1987, and I'm like, wow, so vintage. How far back do you have to go for vintage for antique the antique furniture to be bad? You're like, wow, well, this is before actual good before good furniture. chairs got invented. I feel like you know if you found a like a milking stool from the 1500s, it would be worth tens and tens of thousands of dollars. But would it be any good? I think people would have been be making ergonomic? good furniture for a long time. Yeah, but you you remember Antiques Roadshow watching those those two twins? Every once in a while, they'd find some pre Revolutionary War hutch or or dining room table. And they would lose their minds, and you're like, "Why are these nerds freaking out?" And then it's like, "Oh, the table's worth a million dollars." I'm just saying, there's some point. Like I've seen the Flintstones furniture; it's not good. Oh, it's, well, it's crude Robinson Crusoe type stuff. Yeah, but could you make a better table? I could not. I mean, that's the thing. Could I, you make a record player where it's a pterodactyl <laughs> needle? I could not. Anyway, uh, Frances Glesner was consigned by her time to, um, although she was a curious young woman and talented. Uh, consigned by her time and her class to not go to college like her brother, but to uh, marry young and be uh, a housewife and a mother and someone who was good at needlepoint and and made doilies and and um, 
Listen to classical music. Got a tat. A tattoo? No, lace. You tat lace. Oh, you tat lace. Right. Right. I, I guess I didn't know that. What if all these Victorian women were really into tattoo? Like, yeah, they all had inking. tribal tattoos, or they all, you know, when, when down around their panty line, they all had a tattoo of like a like a yin yang symbol and a little witch. It's like a Jane Austen drawing room, and somebody's having a very arch conversation, and the women are over in the corner, like doing tattoos on <laughs> each other's arms. Well, uh, so Frances Glesner's brother went to Harvard, and uh, and she married at nineteen, and she married a, I think by all accounts, a pretty boring lawyer by the name of. Blewett Harrison Lee. Blewett. And he's related to the Lees, the- uh, Of old Virginia. Of old Virginia. And wh- when I saw his name, Blewett Lee, I was like, there is no limit to the depravity of wasp names. Like, I'm always trying to come up with comedy wa- wasp names, and you you can't do one that is so outrageous that it wouldn't, that it's not actually, that Blewett actually- Blewett, is, and, and is there some crazy middle name? Blewett Harrison Lee or Yeah, something? Blewett Harrison Lee. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Like- I, I feel like there should be a wasp name generator because you could you could have it be anything, right? You could really you could have a wasp guy named dot com. Yes, with, I mean, a, it, with a hyphen. Yeah, it was hilarious. It was hilarious on the on thirty rock. on thirty rock, but it's actually there. It, it's not too outrageous to to be like some scion of a of a Virginia family named their son dot com. Think it would be some. It's some. What, it's an old family venture name. capital investor. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's an old Dutch name. It's from ye old New York. But Frances Glesner, you know, she lived a, a sort of a conventional upper middle class uh, first half of her life. She had three kids with um, with Blue at Lee, but he was like a, a boring lawyer. He was the lawyer for uh, the Illinois Central Railroad, and. You know how I said this was interesting? This part's this not part interesting. Isn't, no, this guy's boring. Uh, he is boring. But Francis Glesner, ha- uh, Francis Glesner Lee, had clearly a lot of uh, like intellectual curiosity and intellectual acumen, and she had a good relationship with her brother. And her brother's uh, her brother George had a Harvard friend, also named George George Burgess McGrath. And he... Do you think that's still true of Harvard? I have two friends named George who went to Harvard. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I know at least one of those Georges. Yeah, you do. And the... Uh, I know another George that went to Harvard. What percentage of Harvard is George's to this day? 40% it's of George's all, all the way down. people that go to Harvard are named George and or you, Mick George. Or change the name <laughs> George. <laughs> or you have to change your name to George when you get there. Right. Or your middle name is George. Yeah. I would like to hear... I would like uh, all Harvard graduates that listen to Omnibus to email Ken at the at uh, the Omnibus Project at gmail dot com and give us your hot take on George. If you can name a single Harvard graduate named not named George, not counting Conan O'Brien, George George Herbert Walker Bush went to Yale. Yeah, both. I think aren't they oh, both the other, Yale grads? The other George went to Yale. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe half the people at at Yale also are named George or McGeorge. Uh, so George Burgess McGrath was, um, was studying medicine and pathology at Harvard and he and Francis Glesner had a, a close relationship, like a, a, a friendly relationship. And, uh, George McGrath was kind of bemoaning the fact that there was not, um, there wasn't a lot of science in uh, in the practice of forensic medicine, what was there Ma- wasn't really forensic medicine. What was McGrath's field? He was in medicine? He was in medicine. Um, he became a professor of pathology, actually, at Harvard. Um, but as Frances Glesner's kind of marriage fell apart, and she had been, as I say, you know, she was practiced in all the Victorian arts. It wasn't until, uh, and she ended up divorcing uh, Blue at Lee and was, you know, kind of a, a, a wealthy and aimless um, middle-aged woman. And then her father died and left her the international harvester fortune. Wow. She gets $2.50 off of every $8 tractor they sell. <laughs> and she decided that she was fascinated by the work of her friend George Burgess McGrath 
and wanted, although although she'd been, and they were homes. She and her brother were both homeschooled, and she had, you know, obviously like a a, a broader education than <laughs> than a, maybe most women of her era. But then, as now, she's about women. to get into a weird hobby, and so homeschooling was just as uh, it produced the same kind of people then as it does today. That's exactly right. She uh, she decided that her weird hobby was going to be true crime, and. George McGrath, you know, complained that it's not ladylike, right? Was there a pushback? It was not ladylike, but because she was very wealthy, you know, the wealthy sure. can kind of set their own tone. And McGrath, and had there's been, some kind of cachet to a, a to an eccentric, wealthy woman doing what nobody else can do, you know, yeah. uh, which would not be true in another class. Well, she can she can buy her way in. But she was not just she wasn't just a dilettante. Um, she was she was interested in what was at the time the kind of well the nascent field of murder investigation uh, using science. And in 1931, she endowed Harvard Medical School uh, to create the Department of Legal Medicine which was an attempt to sort of codify what it took to be a medical examiner, which how, how you would actually autopsy people um, in a methodical way. But, okay. al- but also, you know, looking, looking at crime, looking at the body as a piece of evidence and looking at crime scenes from the perspective of a doctor. It, it, she called it what? Legal medicine. Legal medicine. That's interesting because that's the origin of our modern term forensic science. Forensic used to be an adjective just referring to anything judicial. You know, forensic skills are like debate because that's what a lawyer needed. Right. So forensic medicine just means the kind of medicine that's relevant in in the legal system. Right. Get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Right. She had, uh, she'd been making like miniatures, which was a fad at the time for, for many years. And, uh, in 1913 as a gift to her mother had, uh, had done a miniature diorama of the entire Chicago symphony orchestra, creating 90 separate musicians, all with their little instruments and their outfits, all sitting together arrayed as an orchestra. If you can, if you can picture the scene, you know, doll dollhouse scale was, one inch equals one foot. So these were not small, uh, little you know uh, arrangements, right? They weren't. They weren't nothing. If you think, I mean, that means a six foot tall person is. No, these are six inches high. It's still right? going to be a big space. It's a lot of stuff, right? And she was, you know, she was a a, a very detailed craftsperson and made these kind of wonderful dollhouses. And as she was. Learning and le- learning about and promoting the idea of uh, first medicine as a as a forensic medicine as a way of solving crime, but then increasingly um, police work as a way you know the the, the two pronged attack on a crime scene. Yeah, in the criminal justice system. Bing bong bong. There are two. <laughs> <laughs> there are, what's the thing? There are two separate. I can't remember the. Go line. ahead, re- read it off. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups: the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. And she's attacking both prongs, right? And in this case, she's also saying there's a third, which is the doctors who junk, junk, who are able to, for instance, d- differentiate between a suicide that looks like an accident. A suicide that looks like a crime, a crime that looks like a suicide, a crime that looks like an accident, and a crime that looks like a crime, and a crime that looks like an accidental suicide, and an accidental crime that looks like suicidal accident. Right? There are a lot of situations where... On the surface of things, it looks like a guy hung himself. Sure. But then it turns out, uh, like in the case of Jeffrey Epstein, wait a minute. (laughs) Maybe he didn't. (laughs) It seems unlikely that both of those video cameras outside his cell would break on the same Or the Kennedy assassination. 
it doesn't see appear to be a suicide, but now we all know that's what happened. That John F. Kennedy actually killed himself. A very elaborate suicide plan. Right. I mean, if you think those, if you think there were government shady government forces involved, well, let me tell you who was running the federal government back then: John F. Kennedy. There you go. That's who exactly was better right. placed? Well, and John F. Kennedy Jr., who's clearly not dead, but is standing in the wings waiting to. Uh, waiting to join the second Trump administration. It's interesting that she's interested in medical examiners because that is also a third prong of the uh, attack on the Law and Order TV franchise, and it's uh, generally a woman in many of the Law and Order shows. The well, medical examiner is often a woman. Though. Well, we'll see that that is uh, that that's sort of an uh, that's the interesting denouement of this uh, of this episode. Oh, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, no, no. It's quite all right. That's what we do here on the show. We 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 trade thunder. Ken, I know you have a pretty diverse portfolio because you have uh, you have uh, fancy money managers probably running your accounts. I guess I don't know. They're, well, or you're also kind of a micromanager. So, are you doing it all yourself? No, I just assume they're all scamming me, and it's kind of a behind the music scenario at some point. I've been thinking lately uh, that I should diversify my portfolio because. My portfolio is not diverse at all. It's very monochromatic. It's a shoebox full of ingots it under your of, bed. It kind of is. Yeah, and I don't think that uh, that I'm going to be able to retire on a bunch of globes from the 1950s. A problem I had for a long time is that I loved the idea of fine art. Yeah. I loved it as an investment because it seemed like it was a like a, a hot market. Sure, it appreciates. And, and, but I uh, you know, and I also loved that it's just such a beautiful one of a kind thing. You know, that was almost secondary to me if it if the artist caught on. But the problem is, like, I found out the art market was actually very rational. Like anything I actually really liked and wanted to put on my wall. Everybody liked it was yeah, everybody already knew it was good and it was therefore outside my price range. Yeah, so, that's the thing, right? It, it, to to actually be there when an artist is still an unknown working in a garret and buy their art for pennies on the dollar, it's not very likely. The result was that if you wanted to invest in art, you were almost certainly priced out of the market. Well, let me tell you about Masterworks. Tell me about Masterworks, John. Well, Masterworks is democratizing what has always been a very exclusive art market. So proven artists like Banksy, Picasso, Basquiat, uh, what Masterworks does is enable you to buy a portion of one of these works of art at a price point just about anyone can afford. So it's just like you're buying a stock in Apple or whatever, except what you're buying is a share in a painting. That's right. And Ma as it appreciates, so does your share. Exactly. Masterworks made history by selling Banksy's Mona Lisa for $1.5 million after offering the painting to Masterworks investors the prior October at one million thirty nine thousand. Oh, if if my math is correct here, that's a thirty two percent net annualized return. That's right. Masterworks has over two hundred and eighty thousand users and has securitized over three hundred million dollars worth of contemporary art. I love the idea that this is actual real art that people are treating this way and not monkeys wearing glasses in the metaverse <laughs> that's right these are these are fungible the wall street journal called the art market one of the hottest on earth and as you know as well as i do the ultra wealthy have been diversifying their portfolios with artwork for generations you know what i would love at this point john is if they were giving omnibus listeners priority access to their newest offerings well is that in the cards i'm here to tell you ken that if you go to masterworks.art slash omnibus that's masterworks.art not dot com not dot io not dot ru that's masterworks.art slash omnibus you can start building an intelligent portfolio today blue chip art prices have outpaced the s p 500 between 1995 and 2021 you'd be better off buying art than buying stock with inflation at a 39 year high and rising on top of COVID variants whiplashing the stock markets. This is action-packed. There's never been a better time to rethink your portfolio mix. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. That's masterworks.art slash omnibus. I've, I've seen a lot of these miniatures of this time in museums. Like, have you been in enough museums to, yeah. to see the 19th century, you know, those, the, the, those thorn rooms in that weird place under the... Um, 
the Art Institute of Chicago, and uh, I was in a toy museum in Basel, Switzerland last summer that just had floor after floor of just insanely detailed uh, little model tableau. I, I guess today everybody just scratches that itch with Lego. Yeah, right. And and if you think about the mid-century fascination with model building, model trains, and yeah. all those Ravel uh, B24 model kits that I, <laughs> that I constructed and then blew up with firecrackers. But before it was transportation, people were just making little making, parlors. Making little parlors, right. And, and it's a... What are you doing tonight, uh, Joe? Um, just going to go home and make a little parlor. I'm kind of busy. It's pretty, it's pretty fun work. And as you, as you just suggested, it's also a way, it's also a, a kind of voyeuristic way of, um, exploring, you know, the first thing you probably do is make your own parlor, but then the second thing you do is make your neighbor's parlor or the parlor of someone famous. And in Francis Glesner Lee's case, you start to work on parlors um, of people living in worlds that you don't have access to. So she she started— What would that mean in her case? She's, she's a person of privilege. Well, by 1936, she had—she'd uh, started funding— what she called the seminars in homicide investigation, where she would bring together, uh, you know, like high ranking police people into these small groups and they would talk about the latest advances in investigating crime scenes and trying to develop, uh, develop the eye and the mind to look at a crime scene as to look at it methodically. And she would, you know, she suggested that you work in a clockwise circular wow. spiral looking from the outside into the center. And I think she's working against the, the tendency, the natural human ten- tendency to walk right up to the dead body and flip it over, right? Like, what killed this person? Uh, you know, what, let me walk through this pu- a puddle of blood. I would nudge it with my foot. First, First you nudge it, yeah. right? First you nudge it, just to make sure the person doesn't gasp and sit up and go, no, I... Just spilled ketchup and fainted. It would save you a ton of time. Yeah. Um, but right about this time, you know, she's now in her 40s. And and the idea, culturally, the idea that, that criminological theory is going to make crime investigation a science like, like we're trying to make everything else a science mm. in the early 20th century. There's got to be a scientific way to uh, uncover the truth, uh, no matter what. No matter what truth you're trying to uncover, because we're doing out, we're doing things this old-fashioned, superstitious way. Right. It's not. It's, it's taking longer, and the answers aren't as good. We're going to use cybermetrics in everything. Um, and so she begins work on what would be her very famous project, which was to build twenty. Dollhouse scale crime scenes, meticulously constructed and full of clues. So, in each case, does she she knows who the killer is and has planted evidence? No, she oh. she has gone. So she used to actually go to crime scenes herself to autopsies. She was learning all this science. Uh, on her own and, and, and with the help of her friend, George McGrath. And then she would, she would compile that into these sort of either, either act, uh, crime scenes that she built little nutshell dioramas depicting an actual crime mm-hmm. or composite crimes. But it was often unclear what the, uh, you know, who was guilty or, or whether or not it was a crime. It was just, uh, they were kind of quizzes. She would put people. So these. So she began these these seminars, and then in 1945, she uh, she started the Harvard Associates in Police Science, which was a kind of. I mean, it's almost like a Council of Foreign Relations or whatever, like a like a group that where these seminars would invite, you know, a half a dozen police investigators and they would be given one of these little puzzles, a little crime scene where there would be, her first one was called uh, the case of the hanging farmer. 
and she'd built a barn and there was a farmer hanging from a noose in the middle of the barn. It was an actual case and meticulously constructed and within the barn and she the the police investigators would be left alone with the with the diorama for 90 minutes and their expectation was that they would be able to discern or you know like discover by examining the crime scene and it was interactive like they you could open the little the little doors do- and the thing. doors interacted if you opened the drawers of the thing there would be clothes in the in the uh in the dresser like the little teeny mouse traps actually worked now this sounds adorable i mean they're awesome but my question is is this well, let's assert that they're awesome yeah. but is this the best way to teach forensic science to a room full of police investigators or is this a case of somebody who loves dollhouses and if you have all if all you have is a little tiny hammer then everything looks like a little tiny nail because if I loved building dollhouses too, then I would think, well, clearly the best way to teach this is with these things I already love to build. Well, when you think about it in terms of it being 1945 or 1950 and what it would take to actually put you as a police investigator into a life-size crime scene, right? like there, the problem is there aren't that many crime scenes. Like suppose. You you may be surprised because we we watch TV now and it seems like well every half an hour there's a new there's a devious killer <laughs> yeah there's a new apartment where there are clues all around and someone hanging from a light bulb there's a there you know there's a, there's a hanging farmer like on every channel but in fact trying to train police with crime scenes you know it's 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 hard to do there's and, not enough to see patterns and and crime scenes decay really fast yeah. you know um, so. This was, it was more a mental exercise of like, get your mind around the idea that within this room, there are going to be 50 things to look at and some of them are important. Well, that's even more interesting if this is the right way to teach this stuff around 1950, because it means that she was uniquely situated. She was the only person in America with this confluence of miniaturist acumen and crime scene expertise. Well, so in 1966, the, uh, like Harvard kind of absorbed the the Department of Legal Medicine into I mean they closed down the the special Department of Legal Medicine and I guess I guess uh, forensic doctoring became such a, a widely understood component of medicine that if you were going to be a, a forensic doctor you know it was just a course of study it wasn't an experimental wing of their medical school anymore and she donated or they donated her nutshell dioramas 18 of which survive out of out of 20 that she made they donated them to the maryland medical examiners and the maryland medical examiner still uses them to train police investigators now today we have the tech to shrink down the investigator to the scale of the room so you can walk around in there <laughs> like on the wire saying fuck yeah well no we inject investigators into the veins of criminals now and they can <laughs> investigate the crime from inside ant man but one of the things that was uh that was obviously interesting to her was that as a woman of privilege who grew up in a in a uh, glamorous mansion in Chicago she was building these diorama of you know flop houses, lower income spaces of the, of the, um, of the 18 dioramas that survive, 11 of them have female victims. A lot of them have, you know, signs of drug and alcohol use or abuse in the space. They're, they're kind of, um, there's the voyeuristic element or for her of, kind of living in these do they work as art as well they do they're 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 beautiful pieces they were on display at the smithsonian just recently um she actually would uh, this is maybe apocryphal but apparently she would wear uh like outdated fabrics in order to then cut up her clothes to use those fabrics to make fabrics for her dolls because she wanted the fabrics to have wear and tear. Oh. So she would like, you know, wear these clothes until the fabric was the, you know, um, 
worn in and then she would snip it up like people were like, well, that's an out of style plaid. And she's like, not if you're the pants of a serial killer. She's kind of a fascinating, when you, when you see pictures of her, you know, she looks like a, a matronly woman of the 1940s, um, sort of like somebody that would be shaking a, a, a like a rolling pin at Bugs Bunny almost, you know, a, um, like an Ele- Eleanor Roosevelt type. But she, in the end, was given, not in the end, but in the course of her career, was uh, became the first female police captain. It was an honorary captainship in the New Hampshire, in a New Hampshire police department, but she put it on her business card, like Captain, uh, captain Frances Glesner Lee. But she was nationally respected by, in the field, in and, a field that doesn't, is not friendly to outsiders, maybe. Yeah, and forensic medicine kind of credits her as the the person behind its uh its development and its um like forensic forensic medicine and forensic investigation i guess are partly the product of her efforts to systematize them and 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 her efforts i mean she wasn't public facing in the sense that she was writing newspaper editorials she really focused on training and systematizing the training of both police and doctors to look at crimes as uh, as things that can be solved with with evidence based practice and also like theory right it makes you wonder how many other big problems we could just solve with doll furniture and we just haven't tried yet. Well, I think what we need is millionaire women. First of all. First of all. That's why you can't tax the rich. That's right. You don't get genius miniaturist You artists. can't tax the rich. And in this case, she inherited her money. So you can't tax the children of the rich. You can't... You, inheritance right. taxes Right. Even if some guy's evil, you can't yeah. tax some evil billionaire. What if his daughter turns out to be awesome and buys antique plaids to solve murders? If there was a reasonable inheritance tax in the United States in the 1930s, maybe... There would still I mean, maybe no killers, murder would ever have been solved. No murders would ever have been solved. Uh, I think fascinatingly, to this day, as you pointed out earlier, seventy-eight percent of American forensic scientists are women. Wait, really? Oh yeah, almost eighty percent of forensic scientists. I thought this was just Law and Order's way of being like, oh, we got to have a woman character. Bum, bum, it's not going to be either of the cops. Nope. Uh, so to this day, most medical examiners, etc. That's right, are are women, and you know, and and the other way that Law and Order has proved true is that almost all federal judges are black women. And that concludes nutshell studies of unexplained death. Entry eight five three dot ps one three seven zero nine certificate number three four three six eight in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, uh, you know how John and I died. You know, hopefully, uh, how the... At the age, uh, ripe old ages of 106 and 111. You know how the crime scenes were investigated and solved. Mm-hmm. You know, the devious uh, riddles and traps we left behind for those puzzling out our deaths. Both of us killed by our ungrateful children. It is kind of a bummer that Sondheim didn't leave some kind of uh, scavenger murder hunt behind when he went. Would it have killed him? Uh, you know, it's probably in his final work. It's a it's a murder mystery that we'll uncover in a desk drawer. Maybe the people reading his will are surprised to see that it's... Um, it's all in song. <laughs> yeah, first of all, that are all rhymes, but also that it's a series of devious uh, wordplay-based riddles. Mm. Uh, it's to, in A minor. His will is in A minor. That's how you're going to inherit all the... I mean, you know, with a lot of people, you'd inherit the company, but in his case, you could inherit the royalties from company. Uh, you could... Uh, but in our day, before our violent deaths, you could find us at uh, at Omnibus Project. I'm at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick. You could find fellow listeners of this show by looking up future links on Discord and Reddit and particularly uh, Facebook. Uh, I mean, this entry won't be out for a couple of months. Maybe Facebook will be illegal or bankrupt by then. But, hmm. One can um, But we were out there in the metaverse, John. Uh, you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, we received. Should I open mail? Yeah, let's see what you got there. You I can mean, usually you, you pull out some. You could send out physical objects to Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. A listener in Nooksack. No, really? Right here in Washington State. I love getting mail from Nooksack. 
I hate getting kicked in the nooksack, though. People around the world sometimes, I'm guessing, think that our Washington place names are made up by us. <laughs> and 10% of them are. So it's up to you to figure out which ones are real. Well, at first I thought this was an autograph request, and then I thought it was something for you, and now I believe it's both. An autograph request and something for me? Yes, it's a card of a squirrel <laughs> eating corn. I know you love getting mail to our omnibus address that's just mail for me. Stephanie and Andrew <laughs> are thanking us for this podcast. Stephanie's son Andrew likes it. Yay! It's a show that he, I can listen to, to with him in the car without worrying about what he might hear. Ooh, I don't know. Did anything uh, bad happen today? No. I don't think so. Hanging I mean, farmers. You, you say a lot of swears. I don't, I don't really I don't do either. many swears. I do not. I think, I think your swears. I think we have to bleep more John swears. I don't think Ken's that's swears. true. I think that I think you have to bleep more like things I say, uh, uh, ideas that are abhorrent <laughs> but, <laughs> and but, possibly illegal in much of the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> but uh, but no, I think if 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 you did a supercut of all my swears and all your swears, I think your swears are worse than mine. Well, swears. that's a challenge to the listener. Worse. So it's not just a total number. You actually have to grade the severity of each one. Yeah. If I say darn it and you're like, F that. <laughs> oh, I also feel like those those kinds of swears where you say F something, that's a swear. That doesn't count. Everybody knows what the what you mean. Should we bleep it? You don't mean do we have to Frankenfurter that. Do we have to bleep the letter F? Um Stephanie, uh, yeah, so I apologize if Andrew's now having nightmares about the hanging farmer or whatever the creepiest part of this show was. Mm-hmm. Um but look what she sent you. Uh, a lady in her town makes local Washington magnets. I like this So here's already. here's Birch Bay, Washington, or Blaine. Uh, oh, the, Blaine, Washington. The most beautiful sites of... <laughs> the great Blaine, Washington. The most beautiful site of Blaine is apparently the beautiful Semiamu, and I don't know what that is. Do you know what Semiamu is? But we have refrigerator magnets of the northwestern corner of our state here. <clears throat> and... Oh, Birch Bay. They uh, it's a, It's like an oil painting of... Of some rotting pilings. Um, Samiamu. Is that is Chinook it, jargon? It might be. I don't know what Samiamu is. We are, uh, that's what it's called when a whale is descended from a cow. <laughs> it's a resort in Blaine. It's a, uh, you know, because uh, in, in the summer, people head up there. To Blaine, yeah. It's as close to you as you can get to Canada in it's, the United States without going to Alaska. <laughs> it's where you live if you want to. Go drive up and get prescription medicine cheap. Well, I let's guess. let's see. What is it? It's, it doesn't look like it's a casino, which no. is unusual. Oh, it's a golf and wellness. There's a lot of beachfront community. stuff up there that is not on tribal land. I've stayed up there before. Uh, Stephanie wants me to autograph one of my children's books for Andrew. Oh, the delightful Junior Genius series. I hope our listeners have all have all bought all seven of these. You know, I will say that my daughter, who is ten years old, loves the Ken Jennings Junior Genius series. And uh, Ken and his family were over for dinner the other night, and did she have she had me autograph them? Yeah, and, right? and well, and and and. Like, she actually knows me. You don't need my signature. (laughs) She was like, will you autograph my book? And you were like, yeah, bring them out. And she was like, no, I just want you to autograph the one. (laughs) Because her favorite one is the outer space one, this one right here. There we go. She was like, just autograph that. It'll, it, it, it'll, it'll cover the other ones. And I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to autograph the book with this, but at at that point I'll probably give it to you. It's a, uh, it's a pen that's shaped like uh, some kind of, it's a a wooden carved crescent wrench. Does the wrench work? I don't think the wrench works. It appears to be maybe a replica oh, it's of a, a replica wrench, wrench carved but it's in a pen. Carved in wood. This seems like the Who type knows? of thing that when somebody is um, when somebody is writing out your bill for their for the hard work they did on your car, they use this wrench. <laughs> Nooksack is full of mysteries, John. We may never fully understand why we got this picture of a squirrel eating corn on the cob hmm. and this mysterious non-wrench. Thank you, Stephanie. I will sign your book and get it in the mail to Andrew. I'm going to sign my uh, Francis Glesner Lee. Oh, wait a minute. But it's not. The pen doesn't work, Ken. Maybe you just have to scribble for a while. Uh, You can uh, support the show by going to patreon.com slash omnibus project. You can tell John's writing. We got Foley work this show. Nope. Doesn't work. Uh, the, uh, yeah, go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and check out the rewards available. You may find some of them 
tempting and become a generous supporter of the show. For the Patreon uh, subscriber that gets my Francis Glesner Lee uh, show notes. And we know who that is because it was a request. Oh. Right? Yes. These will go out to... Should I just guess? No, I think you should say. Should I look it up? Yeah. I think it might have been Jack. I am correct. It was Jack. Thank you, Jack. So, Jack, when you get these notes, you'll see that I tried to sign it. With a wrench that was not a pen. And my and it ran out of ink after I said John, so then I signed it again right next to that with a different pen. And so that will explain... Wait, are these both non-wrench pens? Well, no. The, the, the one that worked is this one, which is a... Which this pen is broken, and it's from the DuPont Circle Hotel <laughs> in Washington, D.C. And... Maybe it's not broken. Maybe it was made broken. Is that a hotel that only exists for co- yeah. c- congressmen to romance their yeah that's married why. congressmen to romance their office aides? That's why I was there. Kristen Gillibrand invited me to <laughs> spend a long weekend. You're you're her boy toy. <laughs> you're Kristen Cinema's boy toy, huh? Uh, so the the pen, the wrench did write for a second and then stopped. Just for yes, the record, it just wrote it wrote the name John, but it would not continue oh, for Roderick. I missed it. There was a second wrench. Uh, this was right under my nose. Oh wait, is that also a pen? It is also a pen. This one is a also a non-working wrench. Let's find out. Oh, this one works. Well, that's the one I should have used. Oh no, wait, it just died. Maybe it'll be back. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna keep scribbling while you while you finish the outro. Okay, and I'll All let right. you know if it comes back. <laughs> That's a treat for the listener. We don't usually have a wet cough in the show right there. Oh, it came back. Yay. Uh, no, it went again. Oh, boo. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We open, pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, we hope that some intrepid forensic scientist of the future looks back at this bunker where Ken and my... Uh, atrophied skeletons. Each clutching a fake wrench, <laughs> confusingly. A fake wrench. Uh, will give all the clues to the, the the destruction of our, the catastrophe we fear that clearly did come. Um, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we will speak to you from beyond the grave in another entry of the Omni.